Thank you, men, for that ministry and music. We've been in a passage of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. We have been emphasizing that Jesus had taught his disciples that unless their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that they would no case enter the kingdom of heaven. So just how righteous does a person have to be to enter the kingdom of heaven? You see, that would have come quite shocking to hear that they had to be more righteous than the Pharisees, for the Pharisees and scribes were considered to be the most righteous people alive at that time. So what is the standard? How righteous must a person be to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said in this Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard of righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven is perfection. Perfection. Perfection, as demonstrated By the Father. God himself is the standard of righteousness. And he requires of us the same righteousness that he himself possesses. Who measures up? Who is able to manifest that kind of of righteousness. On our own, none of us can. So how is it possible for us then to enter the kingdom of heaven? That is the topic that Jesus now addresses in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. The passage before us lays out two very different courses in life from which a person must choose. Two different courses of life from which a person must choose, and there are four aspects to these courses. There are two gates, two paths, two groups of people, and two very different destinations. The text this morning is Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. We used it as our call to worship. I invite you to turn with me then uh, there again. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. So our theme this morning is the courses of life from which we must choose. The two courses of life from which we must choose. First, two different gates. One narrow, one wide. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. In the passage, the gate is the way of entrance. And in the context, it's entrance into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. 
Jesus had already said that unless their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, they could not enter the kingdom of God. So they had to enter by the narrow gate. So how does one do that? What is the narrow gate through which we must enter? The answer is, it is Jesus Christ himself. The word gate here can mean gate or door. And elsewhere, Jesus, in John chapter 10, refers to himself as the door. Listen to these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. He is the one through which all people enter and are saved. But it's described in our text as a narrow gate. Why narrow? Answer, because it is restrictive. Jesus is not just a way to enter the kingdom of heaven. He is not just a way to have a right relationship with God. He's not just a way to have our sins forgiven. He is the one And the only way. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. The other course of life has a wide gate. Wide because it refers to the multitude of other ways that people seek to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's an old adage that says all ways lead to Rome, or all roads lead to Rome. It was because Rome was such a central city in the ancient world. So no matter what road you took, eventually it was going to end up at Rome because it was central, it was important, it was vital. Well, today there is the concept that all roads lead to heaven, that it really doesn't matter what you believe or what you practice, that eventually everybody's going to be saved anyway. It doesn't matter what religion you practice. It doesn't matter if you're Hindu, if you're Buddhist, if you're Muslim, if you're Christian. All roads lead to heaven, is the thought. It doesn't matter if you are religious, non-religious, spiritual, not spiritual. It really just doesn't matter. All roads lead to heaven. 
People are on many diverse paths in seeking to be in the kingdom of heaven. Some are trying to get there by their own good life, by their own righteousness, by their own good works. Others simply think that God graves on a curve. We're not as bad as we could be. We deserve to be in heaven or because they pray or they give or whatever the case may be. But Jesus said that there is a narrow gate by which one must enter. And he is that gate. So there are two different gates. One wide, one narrow. There are two different paths. One easy and one hard. Notice verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad. That's the word we're looking at now, broad. And the English Standard Version translates this verse this way. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow, or ESV, hard, that leads to life. I prefer that translation. The way is easy, that leads to destruction. The way is hard, that lives to life, leads to life. The easy way. Why is it easy? Answer, because it's the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance. It's a path of pleasure seeking. It's a path of self-fulfillment. It's a road of personal indulgence and gratification. It is an easy road. It is doing what one pleases at all times whenever they feel like doing it. It's just letting yourself go and fulfill any sinful desire that one might have. My mother used to have a saying that she would say to me often, and that was, if things are going too easy, make sure you're not going downhill. There's a lot of truth to that. The other path is described as a hard path, or a hard road, or a difficult road. Answer, why? Because it requires self-denial. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what shall a man be profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It is a difficult life. It is characterized as a life of sacrifice. Whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, which means that there are a lot of passions, a lot of motivations that we possess that are just downright sinful. And we need to repent of them. 
And we have to be willing to follow the instruction of the word of God and the example and will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a life of personal sacrifice. It's a life of seeking to honor God above all things and seeking to love others in the way in which we love ourselves. So it is a hard or difficult road. It is a road that is filled with bumps. It is a road that is still under construction. We are not yet what we are one day going to be. One day we are going to be perfect. One day we're going to be absolutely righteous. We're going to be in God's presence without sin because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we travel on this life's journey, we are in a process of becoming more and more righteous. We are learning to say no to sin more frequently, more often. We are being conformed more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passing away, and all things are becoming new. It is a life under construction. But it's a bumpy road. It's a painful road at times to learn this life of self-denial. Next, there are two different groups. Two different groups. One consisting of many people and one consisting of few people. Again, our text, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who will enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there are two groups. One that has many in it, and one that has but few in it. The words many and few are relative terms. There are no absolute numbers given in this passage or anywhere in Scripture as to exactly how many people are indeed going to be saved. But it does tell us that there are many who will not be and few that will be. Again, relative terms. Because as we think down through the ages, as we think down through the millennia, there have been probably millions of Christians, of people that are born again. No small number, to be sure. But when you compare the number of people that are going to be saved to the number of people that are going to be lost, there are far more, the scripture says, of people that are going to be lost than people that are going to be saved. In the scriptures, the people of God are often referred to as a remnant. And a remnant, of course, is that small bit of cloth that remains on the bolt after the larger part of that bolt of cloth has been removed. The remnant. The many. There are many who lead others astray. 
Matthew 7.15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come to you as people who are declaring the way to heaven, but they are, in fact, false prophets. They are ravening wolves. As I was reading this passage, I couldn't get out of my mind the imagery of the Pilgrim's Progress. And it motivated me to go back and read large portions of it again this week as I was meditating upon on this passage. It's such a picturesque uh, work describing uh, the things that we are talking about this morning. But unfortunately, there are many false teachers, many religious leaders, as it talks about false prophets, many religious leaders that are giving a false message and a false hope. I did a series not too long ago, and I referred to a book by Rob Bell. It's entitled Love Wins. Love Wins. And in that book, Rob Bell asserts that in the end, everybody's going to heaven. In the end, God's love wins out. And so every single human being is ultimately going to be in heaven and the presence of God. Rob Bell is not alone. There are many that teach something very, very similar. But in order to believe that, you have to take passages like this and many others and simply close your eyes to them. Simply deny their existence. For this says that many are on a road that is going to end in destruction. Notice verse 22. Many, so our word again. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then notice verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I'm going to preach on this passage in just a a couple of weeks. So I'm not going to unfold it all for you this morning. But it teaches us that there are people who are religious, who are going to declare that they are in a right relationship with God they are going to actually be able to perform miracles. But that doesn't mean that they are indeed people of truth. Miracles themselves do not demonstrate that a person is of truth. And let me just give you one clear example of that. That is Judas. Judas is a son of perdition, the Word of God says. Judas was a betrayer. Judas was a liar. Judas was a thief. And Judas has no part in the kingdom of heaven. And yet Judas was able to perform miracles. When uh, the disciples got together and Jesus said to them, one of you is going to betray me, the answer that they gave was, is it I? Is it I? Each one was questioning, were they going to be the one that would betray Jesus? They didn't all just immediately turn and look at Judas and say, aha, now we know. Why it was that when all the rest of us were performing miracles, he stood there on the sideline. 
Why it was that he had no power. Why it was that he was so different from the rest of us. Outwardly, Judas looked like the other 11. But Judas was quite different. He was quite different. That's why in the passage that we're going to look at next week, it says, by their fruit you shall know them. I will unpack that. But the point this morning is that many, many will be lost. Few will be saved. Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Jesus said these words, For many are called, but few are chosen. Then Luke thirteen twenty-three, And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Will not be able. Why does the word of God tell us that? Why does it reveal to us that many will be lost and few will be saved. Why do we need to know that? Why can't we just live our life and leave those things in God's hands and just see how everything works out? Why did he take time to stress and stress again and then restress the fact that many are going to be lost and few are going to be saved? Let me posit some reasons in my mind. First, so that his listeners would take the warning to heart. So the listeners would take the warning to heart. Jesus is saying to this crowd, this multitude of people, that many are on the road to destruction. Few are on the road to life. As they looked around them, Jesus wanted them to ask the question, am I one of the few? Out of this large crowd, am I going to enter the kingdom of heaven? And that's the main point of this passage for us this morning. For you to ask yourself the question, am I one of the few? Have I entered through the narrow gate? Or have I been on a path that leads to the wide gate? Have I been anticipating that when I die, I will be in the presence of God not because of a personal faith in Jesus Christ in which I acknowledge my sinfulness, I have admitted that I do those things that run contrary to the word of God, that I stand in need of forgiveness and know that there is nothing that I can do to obtain forgiveness, no merit that I can offer, no sacrifice that I can make. The only thing I can do is trust in Jesus Christ 
believing that he died on the cross for my sin, that not only did he die, but he rose again, ascended into heaven, and now intercedes and prays for us that our sins would be forgiven and we enjoy peace with God if we have indeed placed our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the narrow gate. And we're to ask ourselves this morning, have I gone through that gate? Have I offered up that prayer? Have I sought the forgiveness that comes only through Jesus Christ? Or am I trying to go in with a crowd and be a part of all those that are thinking that they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven by some other way or some other means? Am I one of the few or one of the many? Another way to answer that question is what distinguishes us from the crowd? What causes us to stick out like a sore thumb? We need to realize that if this passage is true, it means that time and time again, we're going to find ourselves virtually alone. That we're going to take stands that aren't popular. That we're going to hold beliefs that seem strange to other people. And we're always going to be a minority people. Secondly, so the disciples would not be fearful that they are on the wrong path. So they would not question the way in which they are going. Earlier in this section... Jesus said, because the Pharisees and scribes found fault with Jesus and his teaching, he said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I came not to do away with it, but I came to explain it more fully, to live it out, to be obedient to it, and to provide life for others. So few so few would hold to what we believe. Christianity is one of the largest religions in the world. Christianity in the broadest sense of that term. Not certainly a people that are truly born again, but at least people that identify with Jesus Christ. So if if you take the broadest term of Christianity. Again, not people who are going to heaven, but people that name the name of Christ. It's, it's one of the largest religions. But if you look at the world in general, and you take into consideration all the religions, and then all of the people who do not practice any religion at all, you find out that it's a minority number, even in that, that sense. And there might be a reason to question, could everybody else be wrong and I be right? Or 
Would God really condemn the majority and forgive the minority? Come back tonight. Uh, Tonight we're going to look at that question in great depth. My text for tonight is that God is not willing that any should perish. So come back and uh, we're going to look at that passage this evening. But this tells us that few there be that find it. Thirdly, why does it tell us this? I think so that the disciples would not be discouraged. The disciples had seen large crowds follow Jesus wherever he went. Multitudes thronged to Jesus. Remember, he fed the 5,000. That's a lot of people from small villages coming out to hear Jesus. I would submit to you that, though I don't know it for sure, it seems unlikely that there would have been any other personage at that time without radio, without TV, without announcements, without any other way of getting the word out. It is hard to imagine that there would be any other entity that would have drawn the crowds that Jesus drew. They were used to seeing large numbers of people. But Jesus knew that in that large crowd of people, that there were people that were coming not because they really believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And they were not coming because they were seeking forgiveness and a repentance towards God. They were seeking Jesus because he was healing people. Because he miraculously fed them with five loaves and two fishes. They came to see his works. They came to experience the healings that he provided. But they weren't coming to him in faith. And then, of course, there's that great triumphal entry in that Passover week where Jesus enters in Jerusalem. And they are coming out in hordes, crying out, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Hosanna to the highest. And then just at the end of that week, to have another multitude consisting of many of the same people crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So that they would not be discouraged. Discouraged in two ways. First, disillusioned. Disillusioned. We need to understand What is going on in America? For so many times, America is referred to as a Christian nation. Christian, in that broader sense of the word again, but if you're talking about people who are born again, it is still a small number within that larger group of Christianity. Don't Let that escape your notice. It explains why in our country things are getting worse and worse. Why evil abounds. Why there is not moral transformation. Why it is that the statistics for righteousness, however you want to measure that righteousness, the statistics for righteousness outside of the church is the same as that for inside the church. 
Why is that? Because there are so many people that are in the church that aren't born again. Because in reality, they are no different. They are a part of the many. Not a part of the few. So again, it's important to ask the question. Not do you go to church. Not do you name the name of Christ. But are you one of the few? Have you truly trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and transformation of life? Discouraged so that they would not grow discouraged when their ministries did not prosper. Their returns by and large would be meager, small. Do you ever get discouraged in witnessing because you've had the opportunity to lead so few people to Christ? Has that ever perturbed you? In preparation for this, I I tried to sit and think about the number of people that I was aware of, and that's always a dangerous thing because you can't be aware of everything that happens and then every profession of faith isn't genuine either. But I tried to think about how many people made a profession of faith specifically because of of my ministry or my, my personal witness. And as I thought about that, I figured it's probably under 200 people that I know over a lifetime that directly through my preaching or my personal witness have made a profession of faith. That may sound like a lot of people, but it's not when you think of the number of people I've come in contact with. It's a small number. It's a small number. And you may look at your life and you don't have the opportunities that I have. And you may say, two, three, one, and get discouraged. And say to yourself, why witness? It doesn't seem like it's effectual, it doesn't seem like it matters, it doesn't seem as though God works. Why not? We had a family fun day yesterday. How many people received Christ? I have no idea. I have no idea. But if you were expecting that we would come and see a multitude of individuals come to faith, it probably was the wrong expectation. Now, does God work in wonderful ways at certain times and movements and eras? Of course he does. And we're talking about of all time and we're talking about of all peoples. So there are times in which God really pours out his spirit and, and many, many people come to faith in that small realm of the world or in that small area of, of life. But we're talking about the bigger picture here. It's so that they would not be discouraged discouraged. I hope you're not discouraged this morning from sharing your faith. Because 
in the words of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, is it true that one plants another waters and God gives no increase? The answer is no. People will be saved. People will be saved. It's a guarantee. Because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus stands before this multitude, not discouraged, not with his head hung low, knowing full well who it is that stands before him, saying, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of this large group, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven, knowing that there will be people there that are entering the kingdom of heaven and people that are being born again. So lastly, two distinct and very different destinations. Notice verse 13. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is broad, that leads to destruction. For the gate is small, the way is narrow, that leads to life. So, destruction or life. In illustrating destruction, Jesus provides us with Matthew 7.26 and following I, again, am going to exegete this in another week. Not today, but I'll just bring it before you to show you how it relates to the passage. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand, and the rain descended, and floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. This house that was built, but then was destroyed. The point of this passage is that you can spend your whole life trying to build something that in the end is going to be destroyed. The only thing that is eternal is people. And you can be spending your life in seeking to bring other people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean you have to be a missionary, it doesn't have to mean you're a pastor, but it means that whatever my work is, whatever my engagement is, whatever my vocation is, that I recognize that it is here, or what I'm about, is more than just putting food on the table, more than just helping my fellow man, but I'm here to bring honor and glory to God, And in whatever instance and circumstance I find myself, I am to be an example of what it means to be a child of God. And hopefully that through our influence that they name the name of Christ and are born again. Everything else is going to be destroyed. Again, Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? I doubt any of us here is going to gain the whole world. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we save, no matter what kind of effort we put forth, I doubt any one of us is going to become the richest person in the world. We're giving our soul for far less. It leads to destruction. It doesn't lead to the kingdom of heaven.
less than 25% of evangelical Christians. We're not talking about everybody that names the name of Christ. We're not talking about the liberal church and all that. We're talking about people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. Less than 25% of evangelical Christians believe in a hell. The way is narrow. Few there be that find it. This passage says that that wide gate and that easy road with many people on it ends up in destruction. Ends up in hell. That is a sobering thought. And we are to be sobered by it. We're to think about those ramifications. People, hell is real. And I don't know the last time that you went to a funeral and got the impression from anybody that that person isn't in heaven. But not everybody dies, goes to heaven. Only those who have entered through the narrow gate. And everyone else perishes. But for those who enter the narrow gate, it's life. It's life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. If you've entered the narrow gate, you have life. You have the ability to have a personal relationship to Jesus Christ, and you can enjoy that this day. Who makes that hard and difficult road so much easier. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And of course, it means eternal life with him forever and ever. The application this morning couldn't be simpler. I simply ask you the question, which road are you on? Which road are you on? Where is your life going to end up? What's your final destination? When this earthly journey is over, where are you going to be? Where are you going to spend eternity? The gate is narrow. The rest of the world has a wide gate. Tells you it doesn't matter. Tells you that we all believe in God. Tells you that it doesn't matter what religion you have or if you don't have any religion. Many 
are in that camp, few are in the camp that I am describing you. But these aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. And I don't say them with any bit of glee. I take no delight in thinking of anyone being in hell. It's not vindictiveness, it's not hatred, and it's not self-righteousness. For I know the only reason that I'm going to be in heaven is because of Jesus Christ, not me. And the only reason you're going to be in heaven is Jesus Christ. And without Jesus Christ, no one is going to be in heaven. Which path are you on? I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to question what path you're on. And then this morning, if you are saying to yourself, I want to enter through that narrow gate, I want to experience the forgiveness of sins that come through faith in Jesus Christ, I'm trusting in him alone and not my own righteousness, goodness. I'm not trusting in anything else but Jesus Christ. If that is your desire and your wish this morning to enter that gate, I'm going to give you that opportunity to respond to the prayer this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who who came, the Son of God, took upon himself humanity, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross in order to take away our sinfulness, that selfishness that rules our heart and mind. You have told us what is required of us. We are to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our might. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And oh God, there's not one of us here that has ever done that. Not one of us has truly loved you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our might. And our neighbor as ourselves. Selfishness rules our hearts. And if we're born again, You are changing us, and we thank you for that that way in which you are changing us, but even now, we're not perfect by any means. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never, ever acknowledged that selfishness, that rebellion towards you, that today they would desire to have their sins forgiven through Jesus Christ, and in that forgiveness... Become a transformed individual that we love Jesus more and more and that we take on a new attitude towards our neighbor in which we seek their well-being. We want to be established with them. We want them to be saved and delivered from the hardships and difficulties of this world. If you were here this morning and if that describes you and you say, I want my selfishness to be forgiven. I want to be a transformed individual. I trust in Jesus Christ and him alone is the, is the way for this to, to accomplish. Would you just quickly raise your hand so I can pray for you? I'm not going to sing you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. But I want to know that you have made that commitment this morning and I want to pray for you. Anyone here, quickly, would you raise your hand so that I can see it and I can 
acknowledge it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, strive with us. Lord, I, I, I want to believe that everyone here knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I did not see a hand. But Lord, it doesn't matter what I see. You know the hearts. But I pray if it is not true, and there is someone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as their Savior, for whatever reason that they didn't raise their hand, I would ask, oh God, that you would not let them rest. May you strive with them. May you pursue them. May you humble them and may you bring them to yourself. For we believe there is no other way. O oh Lord, save and deliver this people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.